Hello and welcome to another ZSL Wild Science podcast special. I'm Moni Böhm, Research Fellow at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And for today's podcast, I've been particularly lazy because I haven't even left the office. Because today we'll be talking about some of the work very close to my heart. Primarily because it's the kind of stuff that I work on when I don't record podcasts. How can we track changes in nature over time? But don't worry, the format will be very much the same of this podcast. I will pretend to be entirely clueless, which is something that comes natural to me, and let some of my lovely colleagues do the talking. Together, we make up the IOZ's Indicators and Assessments Unit. Indicators and what unit, I hear you say? Well, all will become very clear in the next few minutes. But first, let me introduce this merry bunch of people. We have Dr. Robin Freeman, Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Indicators and Assessments Unit. Hiya. Got Louise McRae, undisputed soul of the Indicators and Assessments Unit. Hello. And we've got Sergio Enriquez, PhD student and our very own Spider-Man, because frankly, every research unit needs a superhero. Hi. Robin, you're the head. That sounds very official. So let's ask you, what's the purpose of the Indicators and Assessments Unit? So the Indicators and Assessments Unit was established in 2006 to provide kind of the critical scientific underpinning to many biodiversity indicators. We are a research unit who are primarily concerned with trying to understand what's happening to biodiversity globally. What are biodiversity indicators specifically? Specifically, so biodiversity indicators are aggregate statistics that tell us something about how biodiversity is changing globally. So for example, the Living Planet Index is, is one biodiversity indicator that we work on that tries to tell us something about how the number of animals is changing over time. And the Red List Index, or Sampled Red List Index, are indicators that tell us about the extinction risk of animal groups over time. And so you hinted at those biodiversity targets mm. that we might need to monitor our progress towards. What are they? What do they target? There are a variety of biodiversity targets uh, established either internationally or nationally, and these try to establish particular thresholds or achievements that we want to achieve. So. Some of them might be to minimise the threat of certain species, it might be to prevent the acceleration of biodiversity loss. The one that we're currently working towards are the Aichi targets that are going to be assessed in 2020, and then we're beginning to discuss some of those targets beyond that. What's the kind of data that goes into these living planet indices and red list indices? <laughs> biodiversity is quite a complex term, at its most simplest it's ecosystems, species and genes and then the diversity of those three components. So in our work we focus on species indicators and for the Living Planet Index these are populations of species. So this might be say the number of lions in a national park and how those number of lions change from one year to the next. So we have a lot of these time series of populations um, from anywhere from about five years to over 40 or 50 years worth of data. The red list is a bit different from the LPI and it's based on the IUCN red list of threatened species and it measures extinction risk using a number of things which includes abundance uh, which is similar to the LPI but for the species we don't have that information about we can also use threats like pollution, deforestation to measure reductions in the area where the species occurs and other criteria to measure the extinction risk of all the species within a single group like plants, amphibians or reef corals. So we can see how that group is doing at a global scale. So in a nutshell, the Red List Index takes into account the individual Red List assessments for all species within a group and quantifies them into a single number. And if our listeners feel like finding out more mm. about the IUCN Red List, there's of course a very excellent Citizen Wild Science podcast on mm. precisely this topic, I believe. 
Let's quickly look at these two indicators again in turn because I like to contrast them a little bit. From your population time series data, from your lions in your national park, Lou, how do you then go from your number of lions in a national park to actually coming up with an overall indicator? That sounds like a lot of fun. A lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's both that. So the example I gave of the lions, what we'll do is collect similar sorts of populations from any vertebrate species, which is our main focus in the LPI, from all locations all over the world, so wherever we can get the data that's available. And what we'll do is we'll take these thousands of time series and aggregate them up to an indicator. So we're looking at the average trend in population change over time. Most of our data comes from about 1970, so we don't have much data before that. So what we do is we set our index to a value of 1 in 1970, and then the average change in all of these populations, we use that to then calculate the index value every year from 1970 up until the most recent year that we can get data for. What's the overall statistic hit us? Well, our, our most recent statistic was published in WWF's Living Planet report in 2016, and that showed that there'd been an average of 58% decline in the abundance of these populations between 1970 and 2012. So that was our headline statistic for that report. So yeah, overall decline, so not good news globally. So that's quite a pressing work, really. Yes, it can be. <laughs> How do you cheer yourself up? <laughs> By recording a podcast. Exactly. It's of course the answer Multiple to that. cups of tea. <laughs> and are there any kind of particular patterns depending on different systems or different parts of the world? Yes, we divide the species up into where they generally live, so what sort of habitats they live in. And we found that terrestrial and marine species had a similar level of decline. So terrestrial was 38 and marine was 36 over the same time period. But we actually found the most severe decline and the one that's dragging down the global average is the freshwater species. So that had a massive 81% decline over the same time period. So that was quite staggering. So that would be the kind of headline statistics using population abundance data. What about the Red List Index, Sergio? What does the Red List Index do? So the Red List Index, like I was saying, works in a similar scale as LPI does. So it works in a time series. And what it does is actually give us a number between 1 and 0, where a group, any taxonomical group, rated as 1, has all its species considered least concern, which is the lowest risk category we have. And that's extinction risk. Yeah. So the time series that you have for your Red List Index is essentially extinction risk over time, over time rather yeah. than population abundance over time, over which time, is what yeah. the Living Planet Index does. Yes, yeah, so we get this number at one point in time and we assess all the species in a group. We get something between 1 and 0, 1 being least concern, 0 are all extinct, and we measure that again later in time and find a trend between those two points. So if a taxonomical group was, let's say, close to 1 back in 1970, as Lou's example, and now we find it at 0.5, there was a... 50% decline, so there was a quite steep decline for corals or for amphibians, for example. They have declined considerably the corals mostly with the bleaching events and the amphibians, for example, with this invasive fungus that has been spreading and killing a lot of amphibians' populations. What are the kind of groups that this has been done for? Yeah, so I already mentioned amphibians and corals, so those were the two groups that implemented it. We have birds as well. Birds is actually the more regular of groups. It implements it every six or four years. Mammals were also analyzed, and really, more than once, that's really it. Those were all the groups that implemented the ROI. We can't do it with too many groups because it's just too time-consuming, too costly to do these, because you have to assess every single species within a group. What makes the assessments costly? 
assessments per self need a lot of expertise for it. So you need a lot of data. That's like the first threshold. You need to get that data. And once you get that data, you need to get people together. You have to have this collaborative team of people to analyze what that data tell us about how threatened that species is. And scientifically, that's not as easy as it sounds. We do have standard criteria, which of course help. But having people come together to do this when there's lack of funding is quite hard. It just takes a lot of time to do. And so when you say it takes a long time to assess a species group comprehensively, mm -hmm. how many bird species are there? About 10,000. A bit more now, but, but yeah. That's a lot of species. You would think it's a lot of species, and it is a lot of species, <laughs> relatively speaking, but if you think of a very interesting group uh, called spiders, for example, <laughs> randomly picked out of the air. Uh, Have I mentioned that Sergio is our resident Spider-Man? Yeah, but, but you know, there's other examples, but just but picking spiders randomly, we have about 50,000 that we know of, so there's a lot more species, like five times more. And even in, within reptiles, we have a lot more species of reptiles, don't we, Moni? How, how many species of reptiles are there? Just over 10,000 as well. Really? Oh, that's, yeah, but see, but even they're though... About, the they're about to overtake the birds, though. That's uh, my bet. I, I would think so. Well, but the thing about reptiles, for example, something else about these groups is that the chances of you finding a non-described, non-known for science species of reptile is a lot bigger than it is for birds. In birds, we have these numbers, and chances are it will be fairly stable, let's say. And if you go reptiles, chances are it will be increased. It actually keeps increasing all the time. So, Why is that? Well, because a lot of people like birds. <laughs> so a lot of people go and look for these animals. When they see it, they photograph them and record their soundings and so on. And reptiles are amazing. They're really lovely, amazing creatures, but they're less huggable. Uh, people are not as inclined to photograph, record them and study them and so on. And so what happens is that we have less experts in the field. And, and actually, reptiles are more cryptic as well. They're not as, they don't fly, they're not that noisy, they're not showy. So if you have a bird, it can be singing in your perch or something. If you see a lizard, chances are it's hiding in a rock, it comes out at night like geckos. So there's some biological traits that makes them harder to find as well, harder to study. So I'm just wondering, who here around the table would hug a bird? I'd hug a bird. I have hugged birds. Mm. You I, have hugged so, birds. Uh, is is that not just a face full of feathers? <coughs> I mean, to be quite honest, I find the thought of hugging a bird not mm. like I, I, used, I used to. So I, brought, I was brought up with cats. Mm. And then I used to think birds were weird things. And then I worked on them with my PhD, working on shearwaters. And they're quite cute when you get to know them. No, oh, but are they huggable? That will be... Would you hug a spider? No. He would. I, I probably would. Well, yeah. I would probably, I, I'm really clumsy and I wouldn't want to hug it because I would actually squash it. <laughs> yeah. So that would be... That's the worst. They're very yes. sensitive, very sensitive animals. Precisely, so, and I am not, so there you go. I think the huggable thing comes out of this likability. People usually want to hug what they like. So, if I like someone, let's say Attenborough, I really like him, I'm not going to really hug him. He's very <laughs> huggable. Well, I, I wouldn't mind, he probably wouldn't think the same way. I would hug him. So I would consider hugging him, but what that tells about me is just that I liked or respect his work. So if I see a bird, when I say huggable... Is that your criteria for huggable? Yeah, so you see... I, I respect I, your work, Spider. <laughs> so, so kind of, yeah, so you do a spider with a particularly good web. Yeah, you, you do like, a very nice, awesome. amazing I hunter. I shall hug you. So the hugging is more of a metaphorical hug. And listen out to more What Species is Huggable in next week's Citizen Wild Science podcast. <laughs> 
So I have no idea where we were. We were talking about the Red List Index. What about the coverage of birds in the Living Planet Index? That looks specifically at vertebrates, so I would assume if birds are so well studied, there must be a lot of bird data in there. Yes, and that taxonomic group is the best covered in the LPI. So I think we've got about 14 or so percent of bird species represented at the moment, but it gets much worse when you look at some of the other vertebrate groups. So mammals, I think a little bit less than birds, maybe around 10%, reptiles and amphibians, one or 2%, and then fish, about four, I think, from memory. So yes, we certainly have more data for the better studied groups. That was one of the things in the LPI that Lou and I were working on last two years ago, which was that because there's an imbalance between the proportion of species in a place and the amount of data we have for them, so we have much more data about European birds so there might be so because there's a lot of European bird watchers. Indeed. So there might be I don't know twenty percent of European vertebrates might be birds, but sixty percent of our data is for birds, and so there was quite an imbalance in our data. And so one of the things we tried to do was to rebalance the data using the known proportion of species in a given place, and that, that adjusted the statistic in a way that I think makes it more robust. You already mentioned a lot of it is birds and then some mammals for the Living Planet Index. So in order to build these robust biodiversity indicators, I would assume there has to be an enormous amount of data in that indicator or behind that indicator. So let's have some stats. How much data is in the Living Planet Index? Okay. In the last Living Planet report, we had about 3,300 species, about 14,000 population time series. But we're continually adding to the database, so it's continually growing and that last statistic was produced, well, I guess, over two years ago now. So now we have reached a new total of 4,000 species. I think it's nearly 4,200 now. And our next Living Planet report will be coming out later this year. So we've been running the analysis in the last few months. And I think now the database has got about 22,000 time series. Oh, so yeah, it's, it's an ongoing battle or <laughs> endeavour <laughs> space. To, to, Depending yeah. whether it's Monday or Friday, exactly. how you feel. To amass as, as much data as we possibly can. So I suppose, Lou, you're not going out yourself collecting data on vertebrate trends from across the globe. So that would be quite fun and I would obviously want to be your research assistant. How do you collate your data? Yeah, from the safety and comfort of my desk. So we, most of our data comes from scientific papers. This will be anything that's published. The paper could be focusing on species behaviour, for example, and looking at their population dynamics over time. It might be looking at the conservation status of a species and have just published the trends in abundance. So there's a lot of different data and why it's actually collected. Uh, we also contact field researchers and we uh, mine online databases as well. So there are a lot of big databases, primarily for birds, and collating lots of bird sighting data. And I assume not for every single population that you've got data on, do you have data from 1970 every single year until now? No, it does vary. So the, t the time series length varies considerably. Again, for birds, it tends to be quite long-term monitoring. So we have time series of over 40 or 50 years long. It tends to be quite shorter. We recently published a, a paper on reptiles. We found that the average length for reptiles was a lot shorter, so that tends to be maybe three to five years in length. And that tends to be the length of a lot of maybe PhD research projects or, or other funded projects. It's a shame that we don't have the focus on long-term monitoring of important species such as reptiles. So take-home message, count reptiles, not birds. <laughs> <laughs> or spiders. <laughs> How is the data in the Red List Index collected? Very much like the LPI, 
we don't go out collecting data for the RLI ourselves. So it is in essence a compilation of res list assessments, which use the IUCN standards to measure extinction risk. So each made by the experts in that particular species. So this takes a lot of effort uh, for a relatively small group, like I mentioned, birds or mammals. But for the little things that actually run the world, they have so many species that we simply don't have the resources to red list them all. And in these cases, all we can really do is assess the extinction risk of a sample of them that actually represents the entire group. And I believe that's what you're working on. Coincidentally... Trying to figure out <laughs> what that sample should be. Exactly. So one of the things that has been suggested was that for the known data 10 years ago, we should assess a sample of 1,500 species, which sounds fairly feasible, not that many, but taking into account how little we know of these species and how costly it is to produce one single assessment, joining people together to do hundreds of assessment in a fairly short time frame has become too cumbersome. And we know this because in the past decade, so since the SRLI was first suggested... SRLI, that would be the... Yes, the SRLI would be a sampled approach to the red list index. So sampled red list index. Sampled red list index, yes. Okay. So, so instead of doing a red list index where we do all the species of a given group, if we only do a sample red list index, so we take a sample, a few species randomly selected of that same group, People have studied and analyzed this and said we need 1,500, but that was just too many species, or proved to be too many species, because in a decade since that was suggested, we have done fairly few. And so the idea being for my work is that if we could do less species while still having a representative sample, then we could do the same, or at least more, with less. And that's kind of the, the idea. So you're trying to refine the sample. I suppose for completion sake and to you know keep my self-esteem high, some groups were actually assessed under the sample red list yes. using 1,500 species. True. Twice. Sometimes, yeah. some even twice by yours truly. So mm -hmm. there you go. It's That's true. just just for the record. <laughs> no, so when sample red list was created and we recommended this number, we noticed that despite the amazing effort of a lot of great people, in a decade since it was set in place, we haven't been able to implement it to the most groups we wanted. So we did a lot of groups, but we wanted to do more. And the severity of it is that we actually need to do more because we're running out of time in the sense that we might be losing species we don't even know we were losing in the first place. So why do we have to assess more species? What are these little things that run the world, which sounds mildly threatening? <laughs> no, well, I say they run the world because a lot of these species are crucial for ecosystems. But because they're not as likable, they're not as charismatic, we tend to study them less. Or because they occur in very difficult to reach ecosystems. So it's easier to study something in Europe like Lou was saying earlier with birds in Europe having more studies because it's just easier, they're here, right? We're here. It's harder to study a small specimen, a small species, somewhere very far into a desert. And what the sample red list allows us to do is to try and do a broader approach and the way that we can assess more species in an unbiased way. So there's like this two-pronged approach. One, we should do more assessments. We want to know what is threatening biodiversity and where. And the other is, if we're going to do that, we might as well do it in an unbiased way that we can understand threats at a global level, at a global scale. So yeah. what is the bias? Come on, tell me. Just say it. <laughs> no. Spiders. Just say you want yeah. to assess what's So bias, <laughs> bias towards spiders is because they're one of the less liked groups, but also the highest diverse predators on Earth, right? And they kill about 800,000 million tons of insects per year. So they have a massive impact on ecosystems and human health, agriculture, so on. But because we don't like them, which is fair enough, or not, people <laughs> people tend not to Don't worry, I will, I will cut that. It's like, I will never have Sergio yeah. say in a podcast, which is like fair it. enough that people don't like spiders. <laughs> no, no, we, we'll edit that. 
Yes, so the point is, because we have this bias, personal bias toward them, they have been understudied scientifically or underassessed in terms of extinction risk. And I think that we can do better than that. We should be sure we're protecting all groups regardless of how charismatic they are or not. And there's more in these assessments than just their extinction risk, right? The, the data that comprises them is informative about the threats that they face. So, so while we know a lot about birds and mammals and, to a lesser degree, amphibians, for many other groups, it's not necessarily true that the same threats will be seen in the same proportions. And so doing these assessments of these other groups helps us understand how the threats that are affecting vertebrates may be affecting other groups as well. And I suppose also spatial patterns of where threat yeah. is yeah. will also differ between different groups. Just talking about another under-assessed groups like my lovely little freshwater mollusks, which are particularly threatened in the southeastern USA. Have you done a like a massive hotspot. Mollusks podcast yet? I haven't done a mollusk podcast uh, yet. What's your favourite mollusk? Uh, the giant floater. So I suppose when you talk about finding the optimal sample size for your sampled red list index, that's looking what the optimal sample size is to say something about trends in biodiversity using extinction risk. So when we talk about spatial distributions of threat or what the most prevalent threats are, you might actually need more data. Yes, when this original paper was produced in 2008, yeah. they looked at the number of species that were required to get an accurate estimate of the rate of decline, but they also looked at whether that was representative across regions and across groups, but actually there's something more to it than that, which is that while a number might be representative of trying to get at what the extinction risk of the group is, there may be a different number, which is the number you need to get an idea about what the distribution of threats are. Sounds like there's a lot of work involved either collating data on abundance trends of vertebrates or to get assessments done of extinction risk. So how can we build these biodiversity indicators more quickly or more efficiently? More money. <laughs> That's <laughs> one thing, <laughs> yes. So there's the variety of new tools that we're beginning to use, some of them that you might term machine learning or artificial intelligence, that might allow us to use some of the evidence that we've already gathered, be they abundance trends, be they assessments, to ask questions about how predictable they are from other data sets. So something that you've done, Moni, Tell me all about it, because my <laughs> intelligence quite often is actually just artificial, is and I forget really quickly. Is to ask questions about how threatened data-deficient species are. What are data-deficient species? When a species is pushed forward to be assessed the extinction risk, if we have enough data, it's placed into a threat category, and that can be either least concern, all the way up to being critically endangered and extinct. If the data available on that species does not fill any of the criteria you need, it's not enough data, we don't have enough information, that species has to be classified as data deficient. We don't have data enough to classify it under the IUCN criteria. And so if I turned the tables and said, Moni, what happens when you try to predict the extinction risk of data deficient species? You did turn the table. This is, this is unheard of. <laughs> <laughs> I have officially lost control of this podcast recording. <laughs> So some of the work that we did with a PhD student at the time was to use machine learning techniques, essentially where you feed data into the computer and let the computer make assessments for you. So data on the traits of a species, for example, something about its life history, uh, longevity, or the number of young it produces over its lifetime, these kind of things. We had information about its distribution. So where does it occur? Over what area does it occur? And then we could also add data on threats or data that kind of gives us some idea of human influence within its range. 
for example, there's a lot of climate data out there, or there's lots of data on forest loss. And so putting these things together, we put them into the computer and essentially trained our computer to make decisions based on data for which it knew the outcome. And then we ran these for our data deficient species, i.e. the species where we couldn't make assessments. And that was actually quite interesting. They were essentially threatened in more or less the same way that we predicted based on just assuming that... Mm. They weren't data sufficient. Yeah. So one of the things that I guess we, we're, we're thinking about doing is using available data sets, sort of spatial data sets on threats or other measures to ask whether the extinction risk or even abundance of species is predictable. While we were talking about the sample red list index, Lou has actually started doing a crossword in the corner <laughs> while we were philosophical. Abundance check. <laughs> so Lou, to bring you back in here, we have two biodiversity indicators. Both of them seem a lot of work. Why do you think we need both of them? I think because they, they're complementary. I mean, they're based on different measures, but I think they work well together. So for the red list, you have less frequent points in time that are monitored and this is predicting extinction risk for a species globally and then for the living planet index you have a more time sensitive measure which is annual and which is often based locally so it's it's a local measure of abundance so you've got quite contrasting measures there and also the benefit of the red list is its taxonomic breadth so obviously the LPIs at the moment restricted to vertebrates but the red list can cover a wider group of of species and particularly with the sampled approach it's obviously expanding the coverage quite widely so I think it's important to have both of those measures and actually they align quite well we found that they both say freshwater species are have the greatest extinction risk and um, the greatest population decline but hopefully I'm right in saying that amphibians are the vertebrate group that are most threatened, is that they right? Are, yeah. yeah, and in the upper they tend to be the group which are in the most severest decline. So we know they generally say similar things, but I think it's important to have them acting in parallel. And I think that that question is also an interesting research question, which is if we have this global system of species interacting with nature, what are the dimensions of it that we have to measure? to understand how it's changing. And so Luca Santini and Pierre Visconti was involved, I think, in asking that question in simulation, at least. So they, they got a kind of little world running and they simulated it and they said that something like the Living Planet Index was an important measure and something that measured something about how the richness or the diversity of species was shifting as well was also an important measure. And I guess it's worth pointing out other, other indicators are available. <laughs> <laughs> Is that all the advertising we're going to do? That's, that's too much, really. There, there are other ways of measuring how the world changes. I think that we are fortunate enough that we have these large comprehensive databases that allow us to ask both questions about the aggregate measure, the overall statistic, but also give us this wealth of research data to ask interesting other questions and that's where a lot of our research tends to occur is asking questions about the data as well as the overall trend. One thing that we were exploring recently was how abundance trends of birds and mammals changed in response to land use and climate and our expectation from the Living Planet Index is that habitat loss is one of the major threats to populations. But interestingly, when we looked at how a subset of these populations, about a thousand populations, were responding to land use and climate change, we found a much stronger signal from climate change. So what we found, what Fiona Spooner found, is that those places where the climate's warming fastest, populations are declining more rapidly. 
which is interesting. And I think that it's not that land use isn't important, it's that our land use data is not, is not quite good enough yet. And mm. so we can see this very strong signal of how anthropogenic impacts are impacting populations, and it's very strongly there, but we don't quite understand the mechanism underlying it. We know that places that are changing fast, populations are declining, but we need to get a better understanding of what actually is going on. Cool, so who uses the info in the end? Who uses these biodiversity indicators? Apart from us. Yeah. <laughs> so the Living Planet Index data is available online. Um, you can go and have a look. It's livingplanetindex.org. We made the data freely available, so a lot of researchers use it to answer different types of questions. In terms of the actual indicators themselves, we provide updates for the Living Planet Index to WWF. So they produce the Living Planet Report every two years. The Living Planet Index is one of the headline indicators that goes into the report. And also for policy, so the Convention on Biological Diversity requires us to measure progress towards the Aichi targets, which I think you mentioned earlier, Moni, and so our indicators are fed into that process as well. With the Convention on Biological Diversity, countries have actually signed up to it, and I know that countries can also produce their own red list indices. Can they also do LPIs? In theory, yes, so the method is applicable at the country level as well. The limiting factor is the amount of data that we have per country, so it's not easily disaggregated um, country by country. We've worked with Canada recently to construct a national indicator for the Canadian species, and we managed to get a data set which covered over a third of the vertebrate species. So it is possible, but it usually requires quite a lot of time and, and input gathering a lot of data for that mm. specific country. So we're also intrigued by whether we could use those machine learning methods we talked about earlier to help us find articles, for example. Mm. So the bottleneck in gathering data for the Living Planet Index is our time, right? It's, it's Louise sitting at her desk trying to see whether that paper is a useful paper that contains useful data for the LPI. And so if we can reduce the man hours using automated methods, I think that might help us find more data. Or at least if a country wants to index, for example, as well as the resources, we could then mine the literature to find articles for that country. And we have more time to record another podcast. Perfect. I need to go back to Sergio's spiders, or at least the little things that run the world, maybe also my freshwater mollusks. Seems like there might be spiders featuring at some point in the Red List Index through the sampled approach, but are there going to be spiders in the Living Planet Index one day, Lou? I'd hope so. I'd like to say definitely yes, because Sergio's glaring at me. (laughs) 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 But... uh, But yeah, the big challenge that we have is there is not much abundant data for invertebrates. So that's our big challenge. We don't want to start trying to introduce a whole new group of species, which we're going to have very patchy data for. However, we did start with one of the more, I suppose, charismatic groups of invertebrates, the butterflies. So we had a master's student recently who undertook a big data collection for butterflies and got, how many was it, 300 odd species, I think, globally. So we had our first attempt at incorporating an invertebrate. It was over a thousand population times as well, wasn't it? Yeah, so there's clearly a lot of data out there and I think we're going to try and continue that effort. I suppose butterflies are a good group because they're practically birds in many ways. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Excellent. Just to wrap up our little discussion, and I can't really let you go off without asking you this very specifically, why are biodiversity indicators cool? Sell it. So elevator pitch. My background to where I am now was, I guess, different than some of you guys. So I came in from computing, right? So I was doing computing and trying to work out how the things I could do could be useful. And I think the idea that we can gather information on tens of thousands of species 
to help us understand how the world is changing is awesome, right? I mean, it's awesome that we sit here and we are able to describe the patterns of how biodiversity are changing. And it's awesome in, in the very literal sense that its biodiversity is declining and we know that the threats that we are causing as a group of vertebrates is causing the declines that we observe. If that's not awesome, I'm not sure what is. I'm not sure I can I mean, top he, that. But he is the head. <laughs> yes. so, you yeah, know, I, I've written something, but it's going to suck now. I thought about this. If we don't measure success or failure, it's very difficult to know where we are doing well and where we need to do better. And that's what indicators do. They enable fact-based policy, fact-based action. So we want to know how can we better save biodiversity because we need it. That's sure. awesome. I suppose from a more nerdy perspective, it's... <laughs> it's, it's, it's are you trying to out-nerd the computer scientist? <laughs> yes. Oh, well, good luck to you. Yeah, it, I guess having large databases with a lot of noise and then trying to sort of see what patterns come out of that. Getting some unexpected results now and again. I think that's kind of fun. Sorry. <laughs> you really did out now, Robin. Data, go data. Well, there you have it. Biodiversity indicators in a nutshell. I recorded this interview in July 2018. Since then, Robin, Lou and the team have been very busy putting together the biodiversity stats for this year's Living Planet report, which was published by WWF on the 30th of October. Now, the Living Planet Index features within the report and shows a 60% overall decline in vertebrate population sizes since 1970. Have a look at the report for yourself. You can download it from the WWF or the ZSL websites. Now, it's fair to say the overall picture seems depressing but there is still time to act. If you want to hear more about if and how we can save the planet, have a listen to another podcast from our archives. In fact, it's our inaugural podcast from two years ago, neatly entitled, Can I Protect the Planet? Thanks again to my interview guests for all their insights into the world of biodiversity indicators. And to all our listeners, please come back for more ZSL Wild Science podcasts soon.